Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome uh, to our show today, The Workforce Show. This is Cindy Gern, your host for today's show. And we are interviewing Steve Clements. Uh, some of you may not know who Steve Clements is, and some of you may know him from the Atlantic, or he is the Washington uh, editor at large. Um, so, Steve, welcome. Thank you. Uh, but I want to uh, to explore uh, uh, something with him, uh, with Steve, uh, before uh, he has a chance to answer uh, some of the questions I have for him, because uh, he is one of the best, best interviewers I have ever heard or seen. He is wry. He is he does everything except stand on his head to uh, get the person to ask. Where did you learn to interview? Oh gosh, you know, I think that in the in the t- t- long time ago, when I was running an organization called the Japan America Society of Southern California, it was sort of a sleepy uh, membership organization, and we weren't very relevant to the big U.S. Japan questions that day. And and I just wanted to make it more fun, and and I just decided, you know, we needed to both have these interviews be compelling but interesting to the people who were listening and coming, and they and you know just folks didn't do that. They didn't challenge their speakers. So I just began doing it basically 30 years ago and, and, uh, it came comfortably. Oh, it was the intent, uh, to, uh, to hide serious questions behind Roy's sense of humor, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. You can always do it in a smile, with a smile. <laughs> I mean, listen, folks, I have heard him ask, ask the most direct questions in an indirect way and stuff, <laughs> stuff the person in their tracks. I'm sitting in the audience uh, laughing <laughs> as well. So, so to introduce him, I'll formal introduction, though. He is a. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it to you for the sake of uh, uh, getting it correct. Um, he is the uh, editor in chief of the Atlantic Live, uh, and what is that? You know, so- it's the events division of the Atlantic. So it's our three D journalism, as I call it. You know, we we do editorial programs on stage. Some of it has to do with our 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 magazine or Atlantic dot com content. It may be other ideas and issues, but my job. In part, in, in addition to being an editor of our of our magazine and, and web, is to be the editor that that oversees our our journalism on stage. Hmm. Okay. So big job. Is, tell me, is Defense One and Nexca part of the Atlantic publication? Yeah, they are part of Atlantic Media, so they're sibling uh, media operations. Uh, Defense One and NextGov are in our. Um, government executive group, which is one of the other David Bradley-owned publications uh, in in this. And so I, we work a lot with them, and we have other publications like National Journal and Quartz, which is a which is a digital financial, global financial publication. All of these are within the Atlantic Media uh, family of, of publications. Um, the Atlantic is the biggest by far, 
but they're but they're part of our network. Uh, so I, I see some of the same people managing from different organizations and different perspectives. Uh, and I've had uh, somebody from NextGov uh, as a as somebody I interviewed last year, uh, uh, Frank Conkle. Sure. Uh, if you know him or not. So. Uh, so that's interesting. So, uh, so going on with your your background, uh, he is a national security and foreign policy contributor to MSNBC. Uh, have you listened to MSNBC? It's uh, not one of uh, of the president's favorite stations, I don't think. <laughs> and a senior fellow at New America, uh, where he founded the American Strategy Program and was the executive vice president until 2011. What is the uh, what is the American Strategy Program? Well, the American Strategy Program, when I created it, was the place at the New America Foundation where we did a lot on on foreign policy, foreign affairs. We had a program on, um, you know, Middle East issues. We had a program on transatlantic trade. We had a program on Cuba and and potential uh, issues. And so the American Strategy Program was a look through the prism of American national interest, what we needed to do on any number of of, of big global fronts. And uh, before that, most of the programs at New America were domestic oriented. Um, I was one of the co-founders of New America and and uh, it just, um, we didn't have it. So we created the American Strategy Program. I brought people like Peter Bergen over and um, others, and, and we built, a, a you know, a, I think a very, very strong foreign policy program at, at a think tank in Washington. Uh, was that before or after you worked for Jeff Bingham, a Democrat of New Mexico? Yeah, I worked for Jeff Bingham, uh, Senator Bingham, in the 1990s. So, yeah, I, we created New America after I had worked in the Senate. After that. Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, New Mexico, I, I lived in New Mexico for a couple of years, uh, and so that's one thing we have in common. Uh, and Great. Yeah. And, but uh, besides Jeff Bingham, uh, Bingham, 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 uh, who was a Democrat, you were the executive director of the Nixon Center. How did that right. happen? Bipartisan well, you? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I got to know former President Nixon in the in the very last few years of his life. Um, and Bill Clinton had been elected uh, president. And, and at that time, you had Boris Yeltsin's government basically melting down in Russia and uh, it was one of the first challenges Bill Clinton had to begin thinking about and dealing with it right after he was elected. And so the, the one of the people he called to consult with was Richard Nixon. And I was sort of the Japan guy in Southern California, and Nixon knew that Russia needed an infusion of of cash and financial support. And it was unlikely that the United States was going to be able to lead on that at that moment. And um, so Nixon's idea was to try to get Japan to do that. And he and his people contacted me about helping put that together and, and you know, make a very long and interesting story short. Bill Clinton gave Richard Nixon a letter, which Nixon took to Japan, gave to then Prime Minister Miyazawa. And the Japanese ended up giving aid for a short time to Russia, and it was a very important thing because uh, it stabilized Russia for that moment, but it also gave at that time Russia and Japan their first cooperative thing because they were still technically at war since World War II. They'd never signed a peace treaty with one another. Oh, really? And so, what, did, huh? so Nixon liked what we had did, saw that it was successful, and then he asked me to be the first executive director of the Nixon Center in Washington. 
Interesting. So that that was toward the end of uh, Nixon's life, you said? Yeah. Yeah, he died in 1994. So he was still involved in uh, Sino-Soviet Russian affairs then. Oh, yeah. He was. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that as a male. Okay, so we'll go on with your life. I mean, this is a life of worth living. You know, if you want to live a life full and have full of uh, interesting things, he, Steve's life is that. Okay, <laughs> going on to the next thing. He is a member of the World Economic Forum Council on Geopolitical Risk. <laughs> so it's, you want to talk about that? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that uh, the, you know, the the World Economic Forum, which goes on each year in Davos, has many working groups on everything from global sustainability and climate change and, you know, uh, just a whole for water in the world, all all kinds of subjects. But in the but the area that I was working with people like Ian Bremer and others, it's an international group. We had a working group on the question of kind of looking at the coming fault lines in 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 the world, whether it's between India and Pakistan, whether it's looking at problems like North Korea, whether it's on the effects of climate change on certain areas and whatnot, is that they have an ongoing study group that looks at this question of geopolitical risk. And every once in a while, it produces a report. So I'm just a member of it, and I enjoy it. And it's a good way to stay connected to, to other smart people around the world. You know, we're 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 uh, we're we're growing a story about Steve, and we're going to get to to that story in a minute. But uh, one other thing he has on his his uh, bio is uh, you are uh, on the board of Washington uh, College's Star Center, where yeah. Adam Goodhart uh, is too. Is he not? Yeah, Adam. You know Adam Goodhart. Yeah, Adam I mean, is, I know uh, who he is. I've seen him. I, I yeah, lived Adam in Chestertown. I yeah, had two wind turns from Washington College. Yeah. Oh, that's that's terrific. Well, Adam Goodhart, you know, wrote um, the recent best-selling book, eighteen sixty-one, about the, you know, the first year right right before the Civil War began. Now he's um, doing one on the on the conclusion of the Civil War, but but his book, eighteen sixty-one, was a huge hit uh, a couple of years ago, and he's director of what's called the Star Center for the study of the American experience. So it's about really American history, about the founding era of the United States, um, and many other dimensions of American life and culture in a, in a very broad sense. He's been one of the best uh, researchers in looking at the impact and, and legacy of slavery in the United States, which is not, has not been um, uh, talked about and acknowledged in many universities in, 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 and, and the role of slavery and helping to build some of these institutions and, and who've tried to hide this. So Adam is, is there and I am, um, I was on the, the, I am on the board of directors of the star center. Um, and it was really fun when I came on because when he was still alive, the, the, pre, the presidential, you know, former spokesperson for John F. Kennedy, Arthur Schlesinger was on the, on the board as well. And of course, you know, he's passed away, but it was a real honor to serve with Arthur on that board. Yeah, um, I, speaking of Adam, um, that's my narrowing it down. I don't have no Schlesinger. Unfortunately, I didn't know him. But uh, Adam Goodhart, uh, I heard him a couple of times. He spoke in uh, Easton <laughs> to uh, to the uh, to a group of people, and I remember his, his like you. He said, uh, "I'm considered uh, a newcomer." 
on the eastern shore. I've only lived here for, I forget how many years, and, and most of the people there can trace their families back to 1500s. Yeah, exactly. As, as well. And he told an interesting story, uh, and maybe you can tell, I mean, my, my memory is fading, but uh, he uh, he told a story of the uh, a black uh, soldier of who was... Uh, uh, what did he? Oh, I, I can't remember. He said, that, "Well, in Petersburg, uh, Virginia, that was the the uh, the war that they they dug a, a crater and they burned. You know, all the soldiers burned in that crater. Was that was that right? Am I correcting or I'm wrong or what? That's his story. So I don't I don't know the story, but. Uh... You know, it sounds like a good Adam Goodhart um, <laughs> story to tell. Yeah, well, I'll get the book. Okay, and then, folks, he is not a journalist. He is he majored in economics, right? Adam? No, you. Did you major in yeah, economics? Yeah, no, I, I majored in yeah political science and economics. So, in California, at UCLA, is that right? Right. My sources said it. Okay, so... So what did you? Why did you major in those things, and what did you expect? What 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 was your career goal when you went into college? Well, I think you know the the. I've always I was always interested in in politics and ideas and and I don't know I I don't know a, a, an answer to that that's not doesn't sound corny but I think that um, truth is I've always been interested in you know, political, um, trade-offs and tensions that societies work themselves through. Um, I grew up, my dad was in the military and I grew up as an air force, you know, defendant. Uh, and I saw, I lived in Japan during high school and, you know, when, when I lived in Japan in the 1970s, um, Japan was sort of moving from having been, you know, the little brother to the United States in, in their, in the U S Japan relationship to becoming very dominant in manufacturing and where, you know, while I was living in Japan, the value of the yen nearly tripled in value to the dollar. So Japan became, it was being perceived as an economic powerhouse. Um, when I was growing up there, you were, st- we were still in the middle of the cold war with the Soviets, but you began to see that power was not only a function of how big a military was or how big your nuclear um, arsenal was, but how well your economy was doing. And, and you began to see the, you know, Japan building big, big trade um, surpluses and the United States beginning to build deficits. And so we were on the forefront then in the, in the late seventies, early eighties of, of, I think what has eventually and inevitably led to Donald Trump's success is saying, you know, we've, uh, there are a lot of people in the country that sort of think that wealth got concentrated in too few hands and we gave away our manufacturing and gave away a lot of our jobs to um, Asia. And I, I was there on the forefront of that process of watching Japan become more powerful. And I think that's what interested me both in politics and economics. And you saw it happening. I mean, any, any other people might be there and you know, that's taken for granted, but you observed all of this and you formed some conclusions about what was happening, right? You you know, absolutely. I felt it happening. I saw it happening. I saw it happening. And, you know, when I was in high school, it was the thing that, that became, when I was in college, very uh, deeply interesting to me because I felt the world shifting and the way power I had an interaction when I was in, in, in just my first year in college with Henry Kissinger, 
I wrote and Kissinger had written an article in the LA Times and it was just a stupid article. It just didn't make any sense because, you know, he he had written about Japan and trade in such kind of a way and says, Well you can't you know, you can't um deal with Japan in this way because it's not a power. And I said so I wrote back to him. I got his address and I, I wrote an article to the LA Times. It was my first published article that challenged Kissinger's view. And I sent it to him and I got a, a letter back from Kissinger. Uh, and, and it was just, you know, a very formal thing. Mr. Clemens, thank you for sending this, this article to me. But then handwritten down at the bottom, he hand wrote a question to me about Japan and its economy that became my, um, the subject of a lot of my research at UCLA. And, and I, so I, I became interested in these questions of power, global affairs, you know, trade, uh, national security, and, and it all was kind of one bundle of, of interest for me. But yeah, no, I lived through it, and I felt it, and I saw it, and I wrote to people who were important, and they responded back. And what was his question? What did he write, handwrite? Well, it, his question actually says, well, how do you lobby Japan at the sub-cabinet level? Which would be <laughs> a question that may not make sense at the time, but it had to do with basically how do you influence Japan uh, in ways to, to, to make these kind of And So I wrote a lot about that subject later. How to influence Japan from a sub-cabinet level. And and what the is the long it? story? If you, if yeah, you, I'm it, sure it, it would what be is the viewers, but, <laughs> but it got me connected to kind of Henry Kissinger and that crowd of geostrategic thinkers. And I think that the blind spot they had was on economic issues, um, and that's why I, I don't, I've always been in economic issues. It's very impressive, though. Uh, I was in Japan then too, but uh, I was working for the military <laughs> then, and uh, I never even thought about those questions. <laughs> I was too busy serving the military, so that is interesting how different uh, different paths uh, we take and different things we learn. And so you build on your economic and international economic background to become uh, an editor of Large Ed Atlantic. So, what is it that you, where is it that you want to go? What can you do now? Well, I mean, I I um. I have a very uh, wide aperture of the, the interviews I do, and, and it crosses everything from healthcare and education and global affairs and um, tax policy. I mean, it's I just, mean I you do have to be jolly, very, very brilliant to, to understand enough of this as frequently as you do. Uh, so you're happy where you are? It's going around no, I'm very happy where I am, and I'll be here for a while. Yeah, uh, I know. But I heard you once saying uh, to your boss, "I uh, do. I'll take you want to take my job from me." <laughs> this is at the Watergate. You were interviewing the uh, the president of PayPal. Was it? Oh yeah, PayPal. This oh, is yeah. Um, you yeah. Made, you Devin said, Winnick. Yeah, here's my job. Here's my job. You know, we all got very depressed thinking about you leaving, but okay. Okay, so what are your best interviews? I mean, what, what as you look back along this long, lustrous career, uh, what have been interviews that you have, you know, you remember and have stuck with you and have made a difference? It's an interesting question. I've interviewed so many people now. I think one of my favorite this last year was Hamdi Ulukaya, who was the uh, CEO and founder of Chobani Yogurt. Um, and he was a Kurdish Turkish refugee from um, essentially Eastern Turkey and came to the United States, didn't speak English very well, um, 
began working with some people and took over a, 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 a plant in Northern New York that used to produce cottage cheese and helped turn it into one of the world's most successful food startups with Chobani yogurt. He hires refugees. He helps them, you know, in, in the country, he's got, you know, plants and everything. And, and I, and I just found he gave a big chunk of his company and wealth to his employees. And I think that, you know, his example is a really impressive one in a, uh, in a time where there's a lot of displacement of people and work. And, you know, it's great to see someone who has enormous wealth believe in sharing with their workers, um, you know, in a quality way. So that, that's one of the big ones. Uh, another was Joe Biden. I, 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 uh, did an interview with, uh, uh, Joe Biden and I went on his last trip and, you know, he talked about how the democratic party had become a party of snobs. It was an interesting way to frame it. And it really stuck with me. And, but I also interviewed him about his cancer initiative, um, but also about global affairs and what he saw as the Biden doctrine of really focusing on how to use personal relationships in a, in a way that was beneficial to U.S. Um, strategy and foreign policy. Um, I've interviewed, just got so many people. Um, I, you know, I've, While you're uh, thinking about it, let me ask you about Biden uh, and the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, I do occasionally watch Morning Joe, which is fixated on Trump, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, but I've heard that uh, in an interview that Biden had that uh, he left the door open for running for president in uh, 2020. What, what's, what do you think is that? What do you think of that? I think the door is definitely open. I think that they're, you know, his team, whom I know quite well, you know, they're not going to commit to running, but they're going to keep every option on the table of running. You don't know who the cast will be. It's likely to be, you know, more than two dozen different people on the Democratic side. And so, but he's get de- definitely got a name brand um, uh, recognition in, in, in the American political order. And there are just not a lot of people who everybody knows. And so if you imagine some of the other potential contenders, um, they start out at a deficit when you're compared to, you know, it's one of the things that really helped Hillary Clinton to something she didn't win, but she's a, everyone knows Hillary Clinton. Um, probably next line, you know, people in the country know Joe Biden. Um, it's, it's your, your ability to have very solid name recognition among 350 million people is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing. And so that cre- there are very few people at that level of the stratosphere, you know, who can draw the votes and attention and passion and workers and everything that it takes. So, look, I think the door is open. I, I, I'm not an ageist, um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, uh, people that are older up there. But, but I'm, I'm in the minority. There are a lot of people who are going to be concerned about his age. Yeah, um, I mean, he'll be about 74, say. 75 years old when yeah. he when he runs if he runs. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so then the question is how to deal with that. And I, you know, so we'll have to see how he comes out on it. But I think right now the plan is to keep him positioned so he could run if he wants to. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know whether I agree with him about uh, the Democratic Party being a party of snobs, but it is a party of progressive liberals that are far, far left <laughs> of the, yeah. of the spectrum. And, uh, and I, I'm, well, there are also a lot of different types of people in the party, yeah. right? So, yeah, I mean, 
See, that's that's challenge, isn't it? You, you, there are too many people, uh, and getting how do you? And this is a question that I have. I've, I've thought about it a lot. Is how do you? Uh, how does the? How do you charge? Do you select the people that you're going to tell stories about? You know, you're there. There are thousands, as you said, and on television and on radio, et cetera. There are always the people that are. Their standbys who can count on them to be interviewed, and and how is it that those people get all the attention and like people like Delaney in Maryland, you know, gets none, <laughs> and he's as good as the as the next guy. You know, I think John Delaney, whom I I like um, and know, I I think the 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 challenge is they just you know they have to find a, a pathway to becoming. Um, known and and we don't know what that will be for for barack obama it was because john Kerry's brother-in-law invited him into a prominent speech to speak at the you know uh, 2004 convention without that happening nobody would have had known barack obama i mean it's just it's just a lightning strike sometimes that that you know gives you that that moment um and you just sometimes don't know what it is. It's hard to design it, or you have to. Sometimes people take on crazy views. And for Donald Trump, it was becoming a reality TV star. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's just you just don't know. I mean, the bottom line is, I don't know. I I wouldn't even pretend to know how one climbs that. And sometimes you can end up with so many people there, and you can end up with an environment where, say, John Delaney's, you know, uh, work on infrastructure, for instance, which has been impressive. You know, maybe maybe something happens there that said, oh, you know, a bridge falls somewhere and then John Delaney becomes the voice of that or the face of that. You just yeah. don't know yeah. um, what what can trigger. But, you know, he's the first out and willingness trying to talk about ideas. But we're also in a period in American politics where we're kind of driven by celebrity culture. And I think it's unhealthy, but it is what it is. And And thus far, John's not been able to penetrate that. You are so wise. You are so wise. I know that uh, with Warner in Virginia, it was uh, it was the same thing. He he was, uh, you know, he didn't make the inner circle to in his climb. In fact, it was the New York Times that probably put him down uh, the ladder. Uh, you know that, that awful picture of him. <laughs> right, right. Well, Mark Warner is now becoming a little bit more known than he used to be, even as go- than, than he was as governor because of the Russia investigation. You know, he did an, I was with him last night at a dinner, and then this morning he was with Mike Allen of Axios, and he really issued a threat to Donald Trump. Now, that threat to Donald Trump has to do with firing Mueller or not, and the Russia investigation, but um, it, puts, it puts Mark Warner in the context of being one of the few who are directly calling out and directly challenging the president. So that actually contributes to his name recognition nationally, not, not enormously. There's, you know, the fact is with 300 million people, most people outside Washington don't think about Washington very much. They don't care about all this stuff They're, They have other um, priorities they're trying to weigh. And so when you're trying to sort of affect real people in their real lives, the last thing they want to hear about are political personalities in DC doing battle. But, you know, somebody is going to run on the Democratic ticket, and I hope it's a you know good person. And I, you know, it's I, and I'm going to be interested to see if if there's a challenge to Donald Trump on the Republican ticket. Um, I, I'm inclined to think there may be. I am inclined to think maybe they are too. So, so, uh, so in our final two minutes, I think, or one minute, one minute. Ooh, gee, okay. So, um, 
So uh, I have one question that I have uh, to ask you, one last brilliant question. Why don't you ask that question? I want to give you the uh, honor of asking yourself a question. Oh, asking myself a question? (laughs) Yes. What question do you think people I should ask you? Oh my goodness! What a what a um, an unusual thing. Well, I would ask myself, why am I so disorganized and don't give myself more time to write? Um, that's my big question because I need to write more. I love writing. I'm obsessed with writing. I used to write 15 things a day, and I've just become so overwhelmed with a different kind of journalism on TV and tweeting and whatever. I need to get back to my writing, and so that's my self criticism and my question to myself: Why? Why don't I get my act together and uh, um, do more uh, writing, which I'm planning to do? So that's my resolution for 2018. Okay, we're going to keep you to it. We're going to see more articles from uh, you, uh, by you in the Atlantic and elsewhere as well. So, Well, it's been a pleasure talking. I likewise, and uh, I am thankful and grateful, and uh, I'm glad you uh, came on our show. You are a very busy person. I realize that. No worries. uh, uh, good luck to you, and I'll see you at the Very next... Very happy uh, holiday and new year to you and your same team to you and, and your listeners. See, and, Thank you. And see you at the next event. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at CareerCentralOnline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.